0: finish out 1 Samuel chapter 31 which says the Philistines were fighting against Israel and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle went heavily against Saul and the archers hit him and he was badly wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword, pierce me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men on that day together. Then the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley with those who were beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. They abandoned the cities and fled, and then the Philistines came and lived in them. It came about on the next day when the Philistines came to, the strip of the, to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped of his weapons and sent throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to their people. They put his weapons in the temple of Ashtoreth and they fastened his body on the wall of Bethshan. Now when the inhabitants of Yabesh-Gilad heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of beth came, and they came to Yabesh and they burned them there. They took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Yabesh and fasted seven days. <laughs> Everyone loves a happy ending but we don't always get one, do we? Those stories, those movies that end in tragedy, I don't remember what the movie was, but, but I remember going to see something somewhat recently that ended in a, in a sad way and, and went home and was asked how you, how, did you like the movie? And I'm like, it was a little too much reality, you know? I, I sometimes just wanna get away when I go see a movie, I wanna see something that takes me to a fun place and, and you're like, hey, hey, yay, we win, and you go home. We don't always get a happy ending. The king is dead. His sons, supposed by some in Israel to be heirs to the throne, are fallen. The very ascendancy of the kings of Israel appears to have gone the way of all the nations. Give us a king like the nations, they said. Well, they got one. And his end was not unlike the end of all the kings and pontificates and presidents and leaders and powers of of all the nations. Even the great prophet Samuel is gone, dead for some time, although we got to see him again last week. That was nice. It's a sad and turbulent time in Israel. But I want to remind you of something as we quote unquote conclude 1 Samuel, there is no 2 Samuel in the Tanakh. The, it's just a continuing story. There is just the book of, of, of Samuel, and this now will take us, lead us into God's choice for Israel's king, David. So this is not the end. This is the pause before we see now the hand of God begin to move in such a powerful way. And by the way, in, restring, in response to his own tragic circumstances, back in chapter 30, verse 6, what has become my favorite verse of the entire book of First Samuel, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And we talked about that Wednesday night. I will just tell you, and this is not a, a commercial if you were not here or haven't tuned in and studied 1 Samuel 30. It's my favorite study we did through the whole book, personally. It's the one I enjoyed the most. I enjoyed studying it the most, recognizing it the most. I think it had the most impact on me personally of anything we've studied because David strengthened himself in the Lord and that's key. David's at the bottom of the barrel. David is in bad shape. David has come back to Ziklag to find it burned, his wife, his children gone. The wives and children of all his men are taken, and David is about to be stoned to death by his own men who are so angry, so upset, who have all wept themselves into weariness. They want to stone him. I think maybe the reason they didn't stone him is they were too tired from weeping, and David strengthened himself in the Lord. And it's such a dramatic contrast between a man who strengthened himself in the Lord and a man who fell on his own sword. David's coming, and David will lead Israel to its highest height, right up to uh, its, its great rule in his own ascendancy. That's the story that follows. It is not without its flaws and problems and issues, but it is a glorious story. But here at this pause, Saul dies like any king of the nations, In the second Psalm, it reads, why are the nations in an uproar and the people's devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance to the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. By the way, if the kings have to show discernment, I think us peasants ought to show some discernment as well. Show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. In Jesus Christ, the anointed son, who in spite of where we might feel slain on Mount Goboah, in spite of the situation despairing, perhaps in your life or mine, guess what? The son of David is coming. Amen? The king is going to return. The king has promised to do so. His coming is near. His ascendancy is certain. And so, though we have these down periods in life, like this whole chapter, it's a a depressing, sad chapter. But the king is coming. That is absolutely certain. But there's something uncertain here in the text. Something that I just wanna address before we even get into the rest of the chapter, a discrepancy, because it says in verse four that Saul took his sword and fell on it. Verse five, when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul commits suicide, as it were, according to 1 Samuel 31. But if you look at the next chapter, you get a different story. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 7. Flip the page and look at this. When he looked behind him, he saw me, and he said to me, and he called to me, and I said, here I am. Who's this? This is a little Amalekite who happened to be up on Mount Gilboa who, who saw Saul, and Saul, he says, called to me, and he said, Verse eight, who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. This Amalekite is right now standing before David explaining what happened. He said to me, please stand beside me and kill me for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm and I have brought them here to my Lord, says this stupid Amalekite, standing here before David. So we read the end of 1 Samuel. We read in 31 that Saul fell on his own sword and died, and when his armor bearer saw that he was dead, he killed himself. And then in the first chapter of the very next book, we see the Amalekites say, no, he wasn't dead, I killed him. And here's his crown and his bracelet to show you. And I love, I truly do love the critics of Scripture. God bless them. That's a Southern God bless, by the way. <laughs> this is not a contradiction. And even if you just read the chapters back to back as we have done, it's one of two possibilities. It's either a deception, that is, this Amalekite wants to take credit before David and so tells him, no, no, I killed him, <laughs> thinking it's a wise move. It's not a wise move, it's gonna cost him his life. Or, or perhaps, It's just an explanation, a further explanation. This is probably where where I lean a bit that that Saul did try to end it all, that Saul did fall on his sword, that bent over, fallen on his sword, bleeding out. His armor-bearer assumes he's dead and takes his own life, and so the Amalekite finds Saul on his sword but still laboring. The language even indicates this, that he's writhing, that he's laboring in pain, and so Saul says, finish me, and he does. Either explanation works. And this chapter shows us then, chapter 31, the tragic end of Saul on Mount Gilboa. One more question. Who is his armor bearer? The Bible only tells us of two. Now, there may have been a third that's unnamed that we just don't know about, but in terms of what we know, David was Saul's armor-bearer for a time. Well, this can't be David because he wasn't here. Absolutely correct. Who was the other armor-bearer that is named for Saul and his name is Doeg? Doeg the Edomite. Doeg, who himself massacred the 85 priests of Nobe. If it was this same Doeg, his armor bearer, there on Mount Gilboa alongside Saul, then it's also as likely that the sword he used to kill himself was the sword he used to kill the 85 priests of Nabe. It's an interesting thought, I think, of Jesus saying, all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. And it may be one and the same sword. That's how the world fights. Our sword's different, isn't it? Our fighting is supposed to be different. The way we approach this world, the way we fight back, the way we stand up, the way we go to battle is not the way the world fights. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of, of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. If only Saul had fallen on this sword, then it would have been different. We'd be studying a a different story this morning. He had been warned by this sword, warned by the word of God through Samuel, both in life and in ghostly death, that this was going to happen, that he and his kingdom would fall. Why was he warned? Just so that he could wallow in fear until the day? Or perhaps, why does God warn that we would repent and turn to him? See, all the warnings of Scripture are not there to make you feel bad or guilty or, or ashamed of yourself. The warnings of Scripture are there so that the Lord can say to you, this is what is coming. This is what will happen. Turn to me and be saved. Repent, come to me. And as far as, as we go, our weapons are different. We don't fight with the weapons of the warfare of the world. The war, weapons of our warf- warfare are completely different different. We pray for people. We bring the word to people. We speak the truth in love. This is how we fight. But either way, and and however we, we understand all of this, neither Saul nor the Amalekite were responsible for Saul's death. Only one was responsible for the death of Saul, and that is the Lord. Scripture tells us in 1 Chronicles 10, 13, Saul died for his trespass, which he committed against the Lord because of the word of the Lord, which he did not keep. And also because he asked counsel of a medium making inquiry of her. We studied that last week. And did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, he killed him and turned the kingdom to David, the son of Jesse. God killed Saul? Yes. This was of the hand of God. This was God's doing. It is a sad end to the mortal story. But let's unpack it. Let's take it bit by bit here. I'll give you four points to to follow through as we conclude this section of Samuel. Number one, just four words. Number one, tragedy, tragedy. It's interesting how the chapter opens. Literally, it drops us into the fury and the frenzy of Saul's final battle, which it's like we're parachuted in and it's all going on around us. The Philistines were fighting against Israel and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboah. In one sentence, we get this raging, horrific uh, failure in battle. It's all going on. Davis says, like a television announcer introducing a scheduled program that's been delayed for some reason, it reads, we now join the battle of Geboa in progress, and that's the sense that you get, because remember, in the last chapter, chapter 30, we left this battle, and we followed David over to a completely different place. We're with David as, as he's dealing with Ziklag and he's dealing with his own loss and fallout and despair and tragedy. And yet there, what does David do? You Bible students, what did David do? He strengthened himself in the Lord. Let's go back to chapter 30 and verse six. And I, seriously, read this sentence with me, chapter 30, verse 6, the very last sentence of the verse. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Read that with me one more time. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That's how you live. That's how you deal with the tragedies. That's how you deal with the sorrow. You stop wallowing and you strengthen yourself in the Lord. You go to the Lord. You talk to the Lord. We talked about Wednesday night how there are all kinds of things that you can do. You can can pray and you can worship and you could even uh, perform acts of service for the Lord. You can come to the table of communion. You can gather with brothers and sisters. These are all important ways to strengthen yourself. But the point is the Lord in the Lord that you can even strengthen yourself in the Lord by simply calling the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So you strengthen yourself in the Lord as David had, but Saul did not. So we're in this raging battle, watching its wretched conclusion. In verse uh, verse two of chapter 31, the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan. It's interesting. I paused there slightly as we read the chapter to open up, and I heard somebody go, oh. I mean, isn't that interesting? Who knows Jonathan? How many of you guys have talked to Jonathan? I mean, you're not close to Jonathan. But we've already begun to have an affinity for this son of Saul, such that as we see his death announced, it's like, the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab. No one uh, sighed for Abinadab, by the way. Malkishua, the sons of Saul. This is the second greatest tragedy of the day. Second greatest tragedy in this story, Jonathan is dead. Jonathan, he is the first named casualty of the last battle of Saul. Remember the last time that he and David spoke? This, this has a, 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 just a sad note to it. 1 Samuel 23, 17, Jonathan said, you will be king over Israel and I will be next to you. No, that'll never happen. Jonathan's dead. Jonathan's obit could read as follows. True friend, faithful son. Notice where Jonathan dies, on the field of battle next to dad. For all of the foolishness of his father, and Jonathan knew. Jonathan knew of the sins of Saul, but he was a faithful son. His humble servant. You may recall that Jonathan surrendered his right to the throne, to David, gave it over, handed him his mantle, His shield gave him kingly articles. It's gonna be you, David. I know it's supposed to be you, David. Handed it over. That is great, great humility there. And he is the valiant warrior who gave his life for king and country. He is, to my mind, the most, or at least among the most, godly men of the entire book of Samuel, and there are very few. (laughs) Truly godly men. You could count them on one hand. And Jonathan is among them, and he dies such a great hero. On October 28, 1949, many of you uh, Bible students and history buffs, you know the story that 21-year-old Jim Elliott famously scrawled this fa- phrase in his journal, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Profound, one of the most profound things written outside of the Bible I've ever heard. Elliot died in Ecuador at the hands of those he came to save just seven years after writing that entry. Wrote it at 21, he was dead at 28. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose, and that's Jonathan. See, Jonathan gave up a kingdom that he could not have to gain a kingdom that he could not lose. And I look forward to seeing Jonathan one day. One day soon. Hebrews 12, 28 says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and with awe. So despite this tragic turn and the tragedy of the story, we see Jonathan first casualty, but we know we will see Jonathan again. Second thing to note, truth, truth, truth. You know, going through Samuel, we've had some challenges with this. We've had some questions about how do you walk in God's truth. I mean, his truth sometimes is hard to take. I spend a lot of time talking about lying. David's uh, lack of integrity and David's lying and how it just got him into one you know, bad situation after another and how, you know, that lying is never righteous. It is never God's work. It is not how Jesus moved. Did Jesus ever lie? Did he ever use a lie? Did he ever have to lie? No. And I had some people go, yeah, but the Holocaust and people who lied to save and, and isn't there a time when it's okay? And, and I pushed back on that. Not to say that, that we don't do everything we can. Not to say that God isn't long-suffering and patient when we choose to go left when he would say go right. I'm not saying, you know, we want to justify things. Hey, we are justified in Jesus Christ. That's our justification, which is not to say oh good that I can lie. No, but what if what if we chose truth in every circumstance? What if we stood on truth? Everything else, all the other discussions are hypotheticals. What if we just stayed true as the Lord is true? Well, I've pushed on that because truth is vital and this is in Israel a true disaster. I mean, this is vivid too. When you read through this, and stay with this idea of truth for a moment, we read these following words. This, this kind of paints the story for us. We word, read the word fled twice in verses one and seven. Fell or fallen in verses one, four, five, and seven. Killed or struck down in verse two. Wounded, the word wounded, by the way, where Saul is wounded in verse three is literally writhing. He gets hit by the arrows. He's not just wounded. He's writhing in that moment. That describes what's going on. Verse four, the word pierced is used. Verse eight and nine, stripped. Uh, Verse nine, cut off. Verse 10, fastened, which is literally nailed. And all of this is encompassed four times in the story, verses five through seven, by the very dread of mortal life, muth in the Hebrew, which is dead, killed, killed executed. So it's one thing just to read the story. It's another thing to step back and and look at the colors and look at the paint that was used on this palette to describe how brutal this really was. Why am I going there? Why are we doing that? What's the point of this sad word search? Truth. Truth. This is what truly happened, and it is truly what God said would happen. Chapter 15, verse 28, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. The glory of the Lord will not lie or change his mind. He is not a man that he should change his mind. Back in chapter 28, verse 17, When we see Samuel's spirit speaking to Saul, he says, the Lord has done accordingly as he spoke through me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor to David. As you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, so the Lord has done this thing to you today. Moreover, the Lord also will give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. And so it's true, what was spoken over him back in chapter 15, repeated in chapter 28, this is the precise fulfillment, brutal though it may read, of what God has spoken by his infallible, unshakable word. Probably the most frustrating conversations that I have, and I don't have a lot of these, but are the conversations where people want to question what the Bible says is going to happen. Question the wrath of God that will be poured out on this world. Question the judgment of God on people who refuse Jesus. People wanna push back against that and go, okay, look, or they'll say certain aspects of the Bible are acceptable, other things are not. Who are you to judge? Really, piece of clay? You're gonna now determine what is legit, what's good, what's, what's valid and what is not. God's word is true, whether you like it or not. God's declarations come to pass and exactly it was as was, we could say, prophesied twice now over Saul has come to pass on the hillside of Mount Gilboa. He's dead. This is what God said would come. Now, Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, these two verses, literally changed the trajectory of my life, my pastoral life in terms of Bible teaching. And I used to sit on these all the time back when we started the bridge early on. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. I love that passage. I love what Isaiah speaks or what the Lord speaks through the prophet there. I love it, and I've always thought of those words as so comforting, like the rain and the snow. You know, we had a day of rain last week, and I, I don't know if you're, if you're such a, a, an entrenched Washingtonian that you were depressed all day. I was not. It was a really nice one-day respite from the beauty and the sunshine that we've had all summer long, and I love the beauty and the sunshine, but man, the rain was coming down and there was just something so peaceful and comforting about it at that time, and I read that passage, Isaiah 55, 10, and 11, and, and that's how it feels to me, rain coming down and watering and things sprouting and growing and God providing, how wonderful, how marvelous that is but the same words of the work of the word of God reverberate severely when we think about divine justice. It's still God's word. (laughs) It is still God's truth. And it still comes down and accomplishes exactly what God has desired to accomplish. What I'm saying is that everything God has spoken must and will come to pass, like it or not, that's the deal, truth and he is a God of all truth. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11, it's a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we will also live with him, yes. If we endure, we will also reign with him, all right. If we deny him, he will also deny us. That is God's word. <coughs> Furthermore, and I think in the same vein, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. He will be faithful to his word. Regardless of what you do with it, God's word stands. The point of that truth is that judgment is as certain as grace. Love to talk about grace. Want to talk about grace. Grace is our hope for any and every one of us. Believers in Jesus or not, grace is the hope that is yet before us today that God by his grace will forgive us our sin and cause us to have eternal life, not based on anything we did, but we come to him, we trust him, and we receive grace. And judgment is as sure as grace. The two are equally certain, and so as we read this, I remind you, as certain as his judgment is of Saul, so is his promise to and through David. So that's part of this truth as well, that we will see this in the next book, the promise of the eternal ascendancy of the Christ. Through David comes the son of David. But in judgment or in grace, in catastrophe or in comfort, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 8.3 saying, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But I don't like that word. Every word, it was spoken in Deuteronomy. It was quoted by Jesus to the devil. Every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God. I had a, an email conversation with someone this week and, and a question was asked about some concern. I, I won't get into this right now, but some concern over, over a perspective that is, that is held here at the bridge. And and I simply responded, look, you need to understand that this perspective is based on the word of God. We do it this way because this is what the word declares, and I don't have any other option. Oh, so you're saying you do everything perfectly? No, no. (laughs) What I am saying is that anytime we find ourselves doing something and we cannot support it biblically, then we're gonna change direction. Many of you have heard me say it before. We have a, a statement of faith. If that statement of faith falls out of line with scripture, if we discover that, wow, something that we wrote down is not the same as what God spoke, then we're gonna change what we wrote down because it's God's word that is sure and we want to live on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. By the way, if you struggle with any of those words, good, good, take it to the Lord because he has something that he's doing with you If his own word makes you uncomfortable or convicts me, he's doing something there. That's that's good. Those who receive these words will be saved. That's the promise. Those who deny these words will be lost. And I will add to that, those who pick and choose will find themselves sadly self-deceived. Truth. Number three, tarnishing. So we've had tragedy, truth, now tarnishing, tarnishing. Verse eight, it came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa, and they cut off his head. Now, just stop right there. What? He's dead, and they cut off his, he's a dead head now. They they cut off his head. What's going on here? Is this just pure brutality? Actually, it's symbolic. From a pagan perspective, you need to understand what what the Philistines are cheering, what has taken place. As went the king of Israel, so went Israel's God. Kill the king of Israel, kill Israel's God. Now, I'm, I'm speaking from a pagan perspective here. But this is the same god, by the way, whose ark knocked over and beheaded their fishy god, Dagon. Remember, here today, gone tomorrow. He lost his head, and now they're taking the head of Saul. They can't get the head of Yahweh, but hey, Saul's the representative, so let's take his head and I think there's a, a, a payback there to a degree, but it's also this whole idea, we have cut off, we have cut off Israel's God, because that's how pagans thought. You win the war, you either take their gods and add them to your pantheon, or you just cut their gods off completely, and that's the picture here as they chop off the head of Saul, and verse nine, look what they do. It continues, he stripped, they stripped off his weapons and sent throughout the land of the Philistines, probably not the weapons, they stripped off the weapons, and they, they kept, you'll see what they did with those, but they sent throughout the land of the Philistines to carry good news to the house of their idols and to the people. What they send out? Gospel messengers. Messengers of good news. Go tell all the people, ding dong, the Saul is dead. They send them out. Heralds of the good news of Saul's demise and Yahweh's supposed failure they do this through all their territories. You know, it, I, that verse reads like a dark hijacking of what should be a beautiful truth. Isaiah 52, verse seven, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness. And of course, Paul applies that to those who bring the gospel. And that's the intent of that phrase. And yet, based on this, the evidence of their eyes, These Philistines are sending out gospel messengers on the mountains with their own type of good news. Israel has fallen, Saul is dead, Yahweh is a loser. The rest of the prophecy, by the way, in Isaiah 52, verse seven says, who announce salvation and say to Zion, your God reigns. There's beautiful feet. Because the good news is not just good news that you've won a victory or won a war or overcome an enemy, the good news is peace through Yahweh that Zion will say your God reigns. That's the good news. Anything else is just temporary. But it's interesting, doesn't verse nine read like the media would spin it today? The good news to the house of their idols and to the people. In fact, Revelation 11 even says there are gonna be a couple of witnesses here witnessing out of Jerusalem, and when they get killed, the world will rejoice. You can just see it hitting all the news media, CNN or or wherever, you know, I'm not, I mean. (laughs) There are other ones. MS Loser D, whatever that is, you know. But you, you can imagine the media's play of the death of God's servants at that time. If the media was around at this time, what would be, you know, front page news all around Philistia. I mean, it would be such a spin. Yahweh has lost. Jesus never rose. Christianity is a myth. That's not good news. It's a big fat lie. And that's why I said to you, Jonathan's death is the second greatest tragedy of the day. The first greatest tragedy is the dishonor of the name of God. And what's taking place on that hillside and now throughout Philistia is a mocking of Yahweh. I've told this story before. I was sitting with my brother on the log ride at Knott's Berry Farm. Uh, we were kids at the time. Is this summer, mid-70s, because it was preteen years for me. And, and we're on the log ride, and, and we're kind of going up the mountain, and there are some older teenagers behind us in the log ride, some guys, and, and, uh, you know, and, and they, they were really funny, so we're kind of all laughing going up. The, you know, and we hit the first... We hit the first hill where you just take off in the water, and these guys started saying, uh, "Well, they started singing our last song in Jesus' name." Only they weren't saying "Amen," <laughs> and it was the first time in my life I had heard the phrase. I, I had heard God's name taken in vain. You know, I'd heard that, and I learned. You know, in my in my house, you did not use God's name except in prayer. You didn't. You just didn't do that. And but I never heard someone scream the name of Jesus going down a hill on the log ride. And it just, and it really, it really affected me. I remember at the time, I remember going, I don't wanna hear that. That's not, it, it, it was upsetting and it made me angry and these guys were twice my size, so that was no good. <laughs> and it was, but, and all the way through the ride, these guys were just shouting the name of Jesus as an expletive and, and it was so upsetting to me and I, I still wonder to this day, and I know culture's changed and I know what language is on Netflix and, and Prime and all the others. I, 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 does it upset anybody anymore to hear God's name so mocked and dishonored in our society? I mean, and I'm not even talking about judging the person who just blurts it out because that's all they hear and they don't know any better. I'm just talking about the name itself, dishonor of the name of our God. Shouldn't that bother us? Shouldn't the honor of God be at the very top of our agenda in our lives? That whatever I do, if I do nothing else, I'm gonna try at least in my frail flesh to honor the name of Jesus and to only speak Hashem with reverence. See, Hashem is the way Jewish people, uh, Orthodox and practicing Jewish people today, don't even say Yahweh. They don't know the pronunciation. Yahweh may not even be correct. They won't say the name at all because out of, out of such deep honor, they say, say Hashem, which in Hebrew is the name. Praise Hashem. Praise the name. Because they so highly honor the very name of God. Psalm 74, verse 10, how long, O God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name? Forever? Proverbs 30, verse eight, keep deception and lies far from me. Keep me neither, uh, give me neither poverty nor riches. (laughs) I like that. Feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. So you see this throughout the scriptures, that God-fearing people, that Christ followers, they just, there's something so precious, so honorable about the name that they refuse just to blurt it out. And yet at this point in the story, the tarnished name, this is the worst shame of the story. Is the tarnishing of the name of God among the cities of Philistia. It's gonna be set right. It always is, but in this moment, The name is so dishonored. And by the way, Israel has already begun dishonoring Hashem even before this battle. How do you know? Verse 10. They put his weapons in the temple of Ashtarot and they fastened his body to the wall of Shan. Now you could could say, well, maybe the temple of Ashtarot was somewhere else. I don't believe so. I think the context indicates the temple of Ashtarot is in Shan. So, so the city of B'tshon is still there today. Uh, modern B'tshon actually is a trendy city for up and coming young Israelis. A lot are moving there, it's kind of a cool happening place. And it's one of the, it's, it's a large growing city and there in the, in the center of B'tshon, when they began to build the city, they started to discover there's some archeology span here. Well, that's pretty much Israel. If you're in Israel and you stick a, a trowel on the ground and pull it up, you're gonna find something. Um, because there's just so much history there. Well, they started to dig and discover the largest Roman ruins in the entire country at Shean. We see it on every tour. We walk through it. It's absolutely stunning to see how huge this was and what a mighty city this was. It was one of the 10 cities of the Decapolis in the first century, Remember, the New Testament refers to the Decapolis. This one's called Scythopolis, and it was one of the first ones there. My friends, it is in the territory of Israel its location is the junction literally between the Jordan River Valley and the Jezreel Valley. That's where Beth Shan is today, and that's where the ruins were. And that's this Beth Shan. And so it says the Philistines put Saul's weapons in the temple of Ashtaroth and fashioned his body on the wall of Beth Shan. In Israel, in Israel territory, in other words, there was an operational temple to Ashtarot, Astarte in Israel before this happened. And we know that one point that Saul, at the beginning of his rule, cleared it all out, so-called, so but he, he didn't have any trouble finding a witch. And now we find a temple to Astarte that's there in, in Israel as well. And that would go on, idolatry and, and false temple worship would go on to dog the Jewish people all the way until the fall of Jerusalem by Babylon in 586. And I see it re-emerging in the land today. But it was already going on. How about us? Do we show up here and we honor the name of Jesus while housing false gods? Or tolerating pagan idolatry? How many of you, uh, this service, I'm just curious, how many of you were down in Coopville yesterday praying, part of that group? I, thank you so much. Thank you for being there. I, I was so pleased I got word back that I, I think there were 25, 20, something like that, 25 people in our fellowship. And this just came up, what, a couple of weeks ago when we found out there's a pagan pride festival. And, and then one, one man and his wife, Corey and Casera Elph, say, hey, we, we're gonna be down there praying that day. That's, that's, they live in Coopville. We gotta be praying. And, and Corey had emailed me, Rick, would you just put it out there? Anyone who's available that day? Could they come and, and just be there with us and pray? And we had a whole group of people show up. and 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 I'm not saying this, I mean, I'm I'm saying thank you to those of you who are there, but I'm not puffing you up either. The fact that we even had to send a contingency of people to pray for lost people who were celebrating celebrating paganism yesterday is still just, it's mind-boggling to me. We are not here to tolerate paganism. We don't tolerate this. Well, it sounds like you're about ready to bring on some punishment. Well, the weapons of our warfare, yes. The word of God and prayer and the willingness to stand in the name of Jesus and in the name of the truth. To honor God's name above all else. First Timothy chapter six, verse 15, Paul says, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him the honor and eternal dominion. So tragedy, what did I say? Tragedy and truth, and then the tarnishing of God's name, number four, number four, thankfulness. Thankfulness, and this is where the story comes to conclusion. Thankfulness, verse 11. Now, when the inhabitants of Yabesh-Gilad heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men rose and walked all night. By the way, it's a 10-mile one-way journey from where they were going. They walked 10 miles all night long. And they took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons, so Jonathan was one of those, from the wall of Bethshan, and they came back, 10 miles back, to Yabesh, and they burned them there, which was at that point custom, and they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Yabesh and fasted seven days. It was a dangerous journey. At that time, Philistines were everywhere. They went 22 miles round trip, again, all night long, trekking from Yabes to to Shan back to Yabes What was it that caused these valiant men to do this? Why would you do something of, uh, like this? The, the war is over, he's dead. It's just his body hanging there. The birds will take care of it. And yet, they had in their hearts thankfulness. Thankfulness. And hey, Rachel, it's so amazing. You know, I didn't say this to you at the time. Before we started worship, Rachel's like, can I say just a, a word about, since we're gonna sing gratitude, can I say a word about gratitude right before we start? I'm like, yeah, go for it. How can I stop you? you know? <laughs> thankfulness. This, this, is, this is something that changes our behavior. This is something that alters our lives and our faith. Thankfulness. If you're on a hard day, thankfulness. Just say thank you, Jesus, for something. If you're despairing over some aspect of life, Thankfulness is absolutely key. They go because they're thankful. Why are they thankful? Well, do you remember the story? This goes all the way back to First uh, Samuel 11. And it was right at the beginning of, of Saul's reign. First Samuel chapter 11, I'm going to give you a, a quick review on this. Nahash, the Ammonite king, came up and besieged Yabeshchaad. And the men of Yabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. But Nahash said, no way. Basically, I'm gonna gouge out your eyes. And and they said, well, give us seven days. Stupidly, he does. And they call out, they cry out, send messengers out to Israel. Saul hears, he was coming up from the field, verse five, behind his oxen. He said, what's the matter with the people that they weep? And they tell him all about what's going on in Yabesh. The spirit of God came upon Saul mightily. And when he heard these words, he became very angry. He then ends up calling all Israel to his side and they make for Yabesh-Galad. And he numbered them all together. The end of the story basically is that he comes and he conquers Nahash, the Ammonite king, and he saves Yabesh-Galad. And it is in that moment, it is the only truly spiritual victory we read in the entire kingship of Saul. Boy, it is the one where Saul, he starts out so well by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, rushing to the aid of fellow Israelites. And it's a major victory. By the way, he marched all night to save them. And so they march all night to take down his dishonored body. They never forgot what Saul did for for them. They just never forgot. And when they find out that he is beheaded and his body is lying on Mount Gilba, or that his body is hanging up at this point on on the wall of B'tshon, they get their stuff together, they leave in the evening, they march all night long, get the body, get Jonathan's body, get the bodies of of Melchishua and and the bodies uh, uh, of his other son, what was it, Abinadab, and they bring the guys, they bring these bodies, hiking it all the way back to Yabesh Galad for all the tragedy of the way that this chapter ends, uh, it ends on a tender note. And we need to pause and recognize this. This is the tender note of a king remembered. That these people remembered the good. They remembered what Saul had done. They remembered how he saved them. We should relate to that. We are, in a sense, so much like Yvesh The parallels here are stunning. We're like the outcast offspring of Benjamin. The the people of yabesh were those made up of of the leftovers of Benjamin. That's another story out of Judges where that tribe was almost lost, you Bible students remember. And then they ended up marrying these other women and and settled Yabesh-Galad. And they're still somewhat of an outcast tribe. They're not like the rest of their brothers in Israel. Hey, that's us. We were by nature children of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Listen to me, jot this down very quickly. Our king marched all night to save us. Jesus did that from the garden to the houses of Annas and Caiaphas, to the Sanhedrin, to the court of Pilate, off to Herod's house, back to Pilate again, through the streets of Jerusalem all night long, Jesus marched that he might save us all the way outside the city to Golgotha. Saul's head was cut off. Our king, head of the church, was also cut off. Daniel chapter nine, verse 26, tells us the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Our king was pinned not to a wall, but to a tree. Pinned to the cross, nailed up. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. Our king's bones remained unbroken for burial. Now Saul's body was was burned, but his bones remained intact and those intact bones then were honorably buried with Jesus John 19, 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, immediately blood and water came out. These things came to pass, verse 36, to fulfill scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. Our king's bones were not broken. Psalm 34, verse 20, by the way, is that prophecy. And we see it also, we, we assume it in Exodus chapter 12, verse 46, which says you shall not break the bones of the Passover lamb. So the bones of Jesus weren't Broken, similar to the bones of Saul. Do you see these parallels? Number five, our king's bones were buried under a tree. Saul's bones under the tamarisk tree. Wait a minute, how were our king's bones buried under a tree? John 19, 41, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there under the hill that held the cross under the tree. You could say that, that by proximity alone that the tomb of Jesus was under Calvary's tree. That's five different comparisons between Jesus King Jesus and King Saul, and you might say, whoa, wait a minute, how can we compare Jesus to Saul? Because you've been going off on Saul for a while, Pastor, and he's the soul man, and you've told us he did one great thing, and that was back in 11, and since then it's been somewhat of a train wreck, and he's been a very sinful man. How in the world can you compare Jesus to Saul? Saul himself, 1 Samuel 26, 21, said, I have sinned, behold, I have played the fool and committed serious error. That's Saul's self-epitaph. How can we compare Jesus to Saul? Jesus didn't sin? No. You know where I'm going. Our king became sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. Literally in the passage, what Paul writes is, he made him who knew no sin sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Hebrews nine twenty eight says, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, dying in sin, literally, will appear a second time for salvation without sin to those who eagerly await him. He comes back sinless. He, yes, was innocent and perfect and sinless, Jesus in his life, but when he went to Calvary, he not only bore our sins like as on his shoulders, he became our sin, our king. One last comparison. Saul once rescued the people of Yabesh Gilad from the Ammonite king whose name was Nachash. And I told you before, Nachash means serpent. Our king rescues us from the siege of another serpent. And this will all come to a final conclusion. Midway through the tribulation period, After we're already home with Jesus, we discover Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. This is a major throwdown. This is like the throwdown of all history. He who accuses them day and night before our God. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb, because of the word of their testimony, and because they did not love their life even when faced with death. And that is talking specifically about tribulation saints who stand against antichrist at that time. But listen to that again. That is such a prescription for our lives that we overcome the snake, the serpent, the devil, by the blood of the lamb, we overcome with the word of our testimony and we overcome because we did not love our lives even when faced with death. That's the deal. Our king rescues us from the siege of the serpent. So as this part of the story concludes in memory, tender memory of King Saul and how the men of yabesh treat him, I wanna encourage you to remember King Jesus. Live remembering Jesus. Paul even says it, 2 Timothy 2, verse eight, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my good news. Remember Jesus Christ. By the way, yabesh that city. It means dry rocks. City of dry rocks. But for Jesus, where others may be silent, the once dry rocks cry out, don't we? And we sing in Jesus' name, amen. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember the tragic cross. Remember and hold on to his truth. Don't tarnish the honor of his name. Live your life with thankfulness for his salvation. Remember King Jesus because he's the eternal king. He's the one who never ends. His government is forever. And just as First Samuel is 31 is not the last chapter, The next chapter continues the story and we will, Lord willing, come back to it, but this life is not our last chapter. I've said this over and over across the years and this is not a preacher's talking point. This is absolute truth based on the word of God. This life is not your last chapter. It is actually more of an epilogue to, or or, or a prologue. It's a prologue to eternity. That's all this life is. It's a getting ready for real life. And that's why we're here and what it's about. Remember King Jesus because the greater chapter is just about to unfold. The long-awaited Davidic kingdom of our King Jesus is coming. And I will answer one last question, but will we see soul man Saul there? Will we see Saul in heaven? I don't know. I'm not gonna give you a yes or a no because I don't know. Only God knows the heart. You could argue the case either way for Saul. But I know this much, that everyone who trusts in Jesus, spirit, soul, and body, you will be raised and you will be home with him. Last week I asked, are you prepared to die? I know it's kind of a sober final question, so let me lighten it just slightly how will your story end? How will your story end? Come to Jesus and by the grace of God, his story will be your story. Father, we thank you that we have such peace and such comfort in this truth that Lord, even for the profound absolute of judgment, there is the more profound absolute of grace. Thank you for providing that Thank you for the love that is in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the assurance, Lord. And Father, we don't know if we've got a few more minutes, a few more hours, a few more years. None of us know. I pray that we would end our lives whenever that comes in the hands of Jesus, our great King. And we honor you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.